Welcome to the Western Revolution Show, a show for men and the people who love them, where we discuss how men can find and embrace the healthiest versions of themselves. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corporeal. If there is any one thing that people know about me, it is that I love people, a diverse group of people. I'm never fully comfortable in a space that lacks intersectional diversity. Yes, if you need to look that up, please go do so at this moment. It's just who I am. I want to be able to talk and to laugh and to love with everyone. The impetus for this value began with my neighborhood. I don't know if it was planned, but the neighborhood was quite diverse. Across the street was the Grays, a black family. Next to them were the Katzes, excuse me, <coughs> Marco Rubio. Uh, <laughs> they were Jewish. Down the street were the Harrises. They were white. There were the Hardys, and there were the Metzgers, and everyone in between. We were an amalgamation of race, class, and religion, and we loved and cared for each other. It was from these experiences that I never de developed, as my boy Eli Beatty would say, a predilection for any one type of woman. Although early in my life I dated primarily African-American women, as I've gotten older, I have dated women of various races. However, the lion's share being white women. At first there was this unease about dating them. What would the sisters think, say, or do? What would my parents say? What would their parents do? Trust me, I have some stories to tell. But I think at the bottom of all this was my worry that as a man who fights for the success of black men and boys every day, I wouldn't be taken seriously. I have since let that worry go. But in these desperate times, interracial dating can be quite stressful as you wonder how you might remain woke and be in love at the same time. To help me with this conversation today, I am joined by Georgetown law professor and author of Loving, Interracial Intimacy in America and the Threat to White Supremacy, Professor Cheryl Cashin. Professor, how are you today? I'm doing great, thank you for having me. Oh, this is a pleasure, Professor. We are looking forward to having you on the show today. Thank you for taking time out of I know your busy, busy schedule. One thing I wanna ask and we ask all our guests, Professor, what's your revolution? My revolution, well, I get up every day and try to tell the truth about race and inequality in America through my writing and advocacy in particular. I write about how and why race was constructed, the structures that are used to divide and separate people, who benefits from that division, and what we can do about it. Mm -hmm. So you're doing a lot of writing, a lot of advocacy right now, aren't you, Professor? Right, right. <laughs> These are some desperate times that we're actually going through. I think that's why this conversation is so fascinating today. But before we get into the conversation, I, I want people to know a little bit more about you. What are one or two significant things that you would like people to know about Cheryl Cashin? Well, I was born and raised in Huntsville, Alabama, the child of civil rights and political activists. My mother took 
me at four months old with her at a sit-in, got herself arrested. So I was born into the crucible of, of activism. And uh, my parents, my father started an independent Democratic Party in Alabama, um, ran, ran against governor for, uh, against Wallace for governor. What? Kicks yeah, kick-started the second reconstruction in the state, brought blacks, blacks back into the legislature. So I, I was born around activism, and and not just black activism, you know, biracial activism. My father would recruit anybody. He would take any ally of any color, anybody who was committed to justice and equality, particularly for uh, black people who were being beaten down in that state, um, he didn't have a litmus test for, you didn't have to be black to be part of, you know, the solution. And so, you know, I, I you know, I, I, it's interesting hearing your intro to yourself. I, I mean, I lived in a black neighborhoods and in, 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 uh, integrated neighborhoods as I grew up, but I, I was raised to really, you know, um, look at people in terms of what was in their heart. Exactly, exactly. I lived in a wonderful neighborhood, and I talk about my high school at length, uh, Green Run High School in Virginia Beach, Virginia. We were quite diverse, 30% white, 30% African American, and about 40% um, Asian. And we just got along, and we loved and cared for each other. Still now, almost 30 years outside of our graduation in 1989, we still are very tight, and it, really those values taught to us by our teachers and our parents during that period of time really have taken hold in, in how we actually see the world. So it's really interesting for you to talk about that. My father and mother were both uh, civil rights activists. My father was the first African-American uh, president of the Virginia Education Association. So I spent time at doing that fight, uh, doing uh, – the massive resistance in Virginia during that period of time and, and seeing him fight that fight, that, that troubling fight, um, and always wanting to make sure that I had the opportunity to not only see what was going on with my blackness, but to see the world from a, a, a varied vantage point. So it sounds like we have very, very similar backgrounds growing up and has led us still to make sure that we're woke, but understand that that we're bringing a variety of people into our lives, so I appreciate that. Your book, Loving, um, is a beautifully written tapestry of interracial love in America. What was the impetus for you to begin to study and then write the book about this landmark case in, actually, Virginia? Well, I teach this case. Loving versus Virginia, decided in 1967, was the first time the Supreme Court of the United States used the words white supremacy. And in fact, twice in the case, the it's a unanimous decision written by the same judge who wrote Brown v. Board uh, and says, this law, which banned uh, whites from marrying blacks and other, uh, other people of color, is about white supremacy. Said it plainly. And we can no longer have this regime in this country. I'm paraphrasing, right? right. And what's, I teach this case in my Race in American Law case. I knew the 50th anniversary was coming, and I thought it was a refreshing way 
of really telling the story, most people don't realize, the way in which white supremacy was really constructed in this country was regulating and banning interracial sex and marriage. Right, exactly. And it it's a, has a much longer history than Jim Crow, which, which people are familiar with. So I thought it was kind of a refreshing way to uh, examine for people how we got where we are. Exactly. And and also to explore, which I assume we'll get to, you know, how the the, the taboos about cross racial intimacy have been coming down. Exactly, exactly. Unpack that for me. Exactly. <laughs> Unpack that for me a little bit. Take us on a little bit of a history lesson, if you can, about interracial love in America. Uh for people who, you know, don't have that timeline in their mind or they can't it's not queued up for them real right quickly right now, take them on a little bit of a history journey. All right. Well, very quickly, first of all, whiteness didn't exist when uh, slaves first landed in Virginia in 1619. Whiteness as a concept did not exist. It was created as was the laws banning interracial sex and marriage to really to, to help um, the white rich people who could afford to own a bunch of land to transition from indentured white servitude to black slavery. Right. So what, what basically in the 1600s in Virginia, you had indentured white people who were the largest laboring population and black slaves and some Indian slaves toiling alongside each other. And for the first six decades, they are working together, getting drunk together, <laughs> as having sex, running off, you know, rebelling together, sometimes marrying. And so there's this long, six decades of fraternization, and this presented a problem right, exactly. to the plutocrats. When they decide, well, particularly indentured servants were a rowdy class, and once they got free after their seven years, you know, they wanted land, they wanted everything, right? And so what they did to calm that class down was they elevated whiteness as a concept, but also banned those people from marrying and fraternizing anymore. And for the next 300 years, particularly in Virginia, um, the country doubles down on this color line and uses law to separate struggling people of all colors who might otherwise ally, particularly in politics, and demand more of elites. And we've been in this dance ever since. And, you know, poor Richard and Mildred Loving, many of your listeners may have heard about them because of a movie that came out in 2016, Mm -hmm. right? If you saw the movie, that this this couple, you know, they they lived in a small hamlet in Virginia, you know, poor white and people of color farmers, um, unsophisticated people. Um, they had a, in that town, there was a lot of what's called nighttime integration. My father used <laughs> Explain father that. Used that. Nighttime term. integration. What is that? Nighttime integration. You know, you can figure that yeah, out. Yeah, I but know. Exactly. Here's exactly. exactly. So here's this little town in Virginia in an era of virulent Jim Crow. Right. Despite the formal color line, there was a long history of of mixing. There were a lot of interracial couples um, 
and inter- mixed race families in this little hamlet. Right, and, and, um, and people don't know and, that, especially in the history of Virginia, the cradle of the South, the cradle of the Confederacy, all of these things. It's quite interesting that that historical notion or the historical perspective that people just don't know. That's quite interesting. Right, yeah, you can, well, you guys in New Orleans know about this, yes, right? I mean, yes, we do. <laughs> yeah, yes, we do. There's so much history of mixing in New Orleans, right, and going back to the, what those balls were. Yeah. What's, the, what's fascinating, I, I, call, I say it's the other utter Strom Thurmondness of it, you know, right, Strom right. Thurmond, arch segregationist who's, you know, fighting for this color line, fathers a child with the black family's teenage maid. So there's always been a formal line that says you're not supposed to mix, but a lot, but 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 people who would like Thomas Jefferson who would traverse that line. Thomas Jefferson fathers six children with his mulatto slave. Exactly. Um, so this is, and I and I show this in the book. Um, a lot of this hypocrisy through all, interracial couples, and I don't want to over romanticize it. You know, the main form of interracial sex in the 18th and 19th century, but you know, in slavery era, is master-slave rape, exactly, and I don't right, romanticize right, that. Exactly. I'm very clear about that. But there's also examples of people like Frederick Douglass, who, you know, he, he was frankly a magnet for a lot of women who were wowed by his intellect. You know, quite a few white women right. um, lo- love them some Frederick Douglass. And I Interesting. That. Interesting. You Did know, not know that as well. They're, they're, Wherever there's proximity between people of color and whites in this country, from the beginning, there has been some mixing. And the mixing that the plutocrats most feared was the, of, yeah, of the working class mixing in in agitation to you know in politics to demand more. Right. And so that's what Jim Crow was about. Gotcha. Um, is that a good enough history lesson? Yes, it is. It is wonderful. When I, I, and I know, I know my Facebook Live is blowing up with all the commentary, so I definitely appreciate that. Let's let's move this let's move this forward. But first, I need to make sure that you are listening to the What's Your Revolution show with Dr. Charles Corpru. I've got Professor Cashin, uh, Georgetown law professor and author of Loving: Interracial Intimacy in America and Its Threat to White Supremacy. Professor Cashin. Your New York Times article really got me and really started down the road of let me make sure that I have this prolific professor on the show because the title of the article was Interracial Relationships Are Saving America. And I found that, I found that topic, that, that article topic, wow, it, it took me back, particularly with what we have going on in this time. Um, and why do you why do you make that argument that interracial relationships are saving America? Well, let me make it clear. The New York Times chose that title. I did not choose ah, that title. Always interesting. <laughs> so interesting. Was, Thank that's you. What they, that's what you call clickbait. <laughs> <laughs> I see that. Okay. 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 Now, what my claim is a lot more sophisticated than that simplistic claim. Okay. Okay, what, what I argue um, is that uh, through five forms of growing intimacy, whites 
uh, we're going to get to the point where a critical mass, not all whites, but a critical mass of whites, uh, we're going to get to a tipping point where a critical mass of whites has acquired what I call cultural dexterity. Right, that was the term, exactly. Explain that. Just unpack that a little bit before you go on. Cultural dexterity is the opposite of colorblindness. It's the seeing of difference and accepting it rather than demanding that the person who's culturally or ethnically or racially different assimilate to your cultural norm. Right, right. Right? Um, and it, it, it's, it, you know, what I basically say is we will reach a tipping point where critical mass of whites accepts the loss of centrality of whiteness and wants to be, uh, to join with progressive people of color, and that coalition together will be able to restore functionality to politics. That's a much more modest claim than saying uh, interracial couples are going to save America. Basically, I say that, that what happened in California is likely to happen in the rest of the country. California in the late 80s, mid 90s, was where the country is now. It was gridlocked. It was almost ungovernable. You couldn't get anything through the legislature. And in a 20-year period, California went from majority white to uh, gridlocked to majority minority to functional again. And one of the, you know, uh, uh, there was a confluence of forces. Um, the people of color resented that dog whistling politics of denigrating immigrants and and got more engaged in politics, registered to vote, and ran for office in larger numbers. But also, um, older whites who didn't like the new order died off, and a younger generation of whites which were more culture dexterous came to accept and not fear an environment where they were um, or a state where they were outnumbered, right. right? And so now California, we think of California as this great progressive state, but this is the state that gave us Ronald Reagan, it is. right? It is. Right. Now let me, so so let me and that's only uh, been 30 years. circle back to the forms of intimacy that are spreading this knowledge, this cultural dexterity. Um, uh, there are five forms, marriage and cohabitation, dating, adoption, friendship, and the experiencing of people who are different through media. So right today, um, one-fifth of all new marriages or cohabiting couples is between people of a different race. That's much larger than it used to be. Um, and, And frankly, you know, Interracial marriage actually may be the small, the least impactful of these forms of intimacy because fewer people are marrying. Right. But, <laughs> but you know, one quarter of all adoptions are between a parent and a child of a different race. But I, I think the form of interracial intimacy that is has the potential to be most impactful in terms of spreading cultural knowledge is just friendship. Right, exactly. Right. And this, this, again, this is a modest claim, but and, and, but it is actually very radical compared to two generations ago. Two generations ago, it was almost unheard of for white people to have an authentic friendship 
with a person of color. I mean, authentic in the sense that it wasn't a relationship of subordination where, you know, an authentic friendship is where you actually sit down, share a meal together, can talk about things, right? Exactly, and, exactly. And there is research. It's not rocket science, but if, if uh, a person – a white person has a friendship with a person of another race, particularly if it's a black person. It predicts greater empathy regarding what black people experience, which in turn feeds into greater anger regarding how black people are treated, which in turn predicts greater support for and participation in collective action for racial justice. And like, so here's a stat for you. 60% of whites under age 30 agree with the Black Lives Matter movement right, and its critique of law enforcement. They are very different from their grandparents. And right. I'm saying, you know, you don't have to convince everybody, but the day will come when it gets easier to get the policy reforms you want because you have a critical mass of white allies that get it. Like say, hey, I get it. And, you know, this idea about being woke, you know, the other thing I point out is in media, um, you don't even necessarily have to have a black friend to gain cultural knowledge. You know, like, something like 80% of the audience for blackish, that. Very popular program. Yeah, I love that show. Uh, Andre, uh, uh, Andre Anderson is one of my favorite character. I mean, favorite actors, and his character is amazing. And we talk about his role in Black America um, and showing this positive image of a Black father. It's so critical for everyone to see. Well, eighty percent of the audience, or something like eighty percent, is white. And so Anthony Anderson, I think that's his name. Anthony, he's exactly. humanizing Black men. For people who, you know, who, you know, every week they watch him, and not not all of them will experience it this way, but but you know, um, there's research that shows that people can develop an affectionate tie for a fictional character like that, or say a black president of the United States, in ways that reduces prejudice. Now, people will say, you know. What's she talking about? We're in this awful time. Yes, we're in this awful time. But when you, if you look at the footage of Charlottesville, right, you know, there were white folks on both sides of that fight. Yes, they are. Yes, <laughs> yes they are. You know, there are allies, and there are, I think the, that Pre Trump, Donald <laughs> J. Trump, is, is accelerating seeing by a number of white folks who are saying, hey, there's something wrong with this picture, and I, I'm, not, I'm not down with demonizing other people. That's not the America I want to live in. So this is my argument, that, that um, um, intimate relationships, and, you know, we haven't really gotten specific, um, intimate romantic relationships in particular can really wake up a person. There's nothing more painful than seeing someone you love being treated in, in, a, in a different way. Exactly. And I, I tell exactly. this story in the book of a, a white woman who was married to a black man. And um, he, um, was this happens to black men, he got picked up, um, taken to jail and arrested on completely false 
circumstances. He was utterly innocent. Um, and his wife, uh, who had always thought of police as officer-friendly, um, after that incident went into months of depression because suddenly she saw the police and her country through her husband's eye. Right, you exactly. know? Um, and she had to, like, you know, get, you know, find coping mechanisms and, 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 and you know, as, as, as black people do. But it totally, um, she became woke after that, right? <laughs> she saw things that she otherwise never would have seen. And so that's where, you know, and I tell these stories, um, you know, uh, grandparents who have a biracial child foisted exactly. on them. Right. And most, not all of them do, but most grandparents with any real feeling in their heart fall in love. You have to. You know? You, you, you they have fall to. in love. That's your blood. Right? That's your, that is, that is um, your bloodline. You know, not, you know, not everybody does, but... but um, no, no, and no. And I show you tell these stories of these white grandparents who have these biracial children, and they become the fiercest advocates yeah. because, you know... They, 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 and it's horrifying Nobody's gonna when they do anything start to, my to blood. see racism that they never saw before. Right, right, exactly. And I know I have a, a number of friends who have, who are very, very close to me who have entered into interracial relationships and have had to deal with the sting of older parents uh, not accepting their um, their relationships until until children are bought into the relationship, and then all of a sudden there is like, oh, wait a minute. I've got I've, I've now got to see through my children's eyes, my grandchildren's eyes, and what's going on, and there's this opening. And like you said, it's not everyone, um, but it's very interesting. The other part that I, w I want to mention, because we're almost uh, about to go to break, Professor, and I know your time is short, um, is that making sure that if you, if in these intimacy, these, these five intimacies, especially the friendship and relationship, that if you're on the other side, if you're white, you are attempting to figure out what is going on with whoever on the other side and their oppression and marginalization. So you have that understanding. So I, I think when I'm dating, I ask that question or, or begin to investigate how woke are you? Because like you said, if you don't understand the, the plight that I'm going through on a daily basis, even though I have a PhD, but still walk through, if I've got a hoodie on, I'm still being looked at as a certain, uh, a certain man, then I don't know if we can make it. Um, and so that is that is something that I begin to say, have that conversation. How woke are you <laughs> when if we're going to enter into some, some some form of relationship, whether it be friendship or romantic relationship? I think that is critical um, moving forward because if you can't have that empathy for what's going on, it's gonna it's going to then hurt our relationship down the road because you won't be able to see because you're going to want me to be empathetic about something that's going on with you, and if that can't if we can't have that correlation together. It's going to prove traumatic for the relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, Professor, one, one last question before we go. Um, you, you talk about the intimacy of relationships. Do you see in your work that there's a change in perception of African-American men because of these various interracial intimacies? Because th there is this monolithic feeling about African-American men. Are you feeling a shift in this perception because of these interracial intimacies, as you talk about? Well, 
I, I, it's very complicated. You know, for for a long time, there was this stereotype of black men as the sexual predator, right? And that that was that was what um, was the main uh, propaganda animating Jim Crow. We can't let people sit on the bus together because a black man will end up raping your daughter, right? That that was you know that stereotype has largely been extinguished. And there's a, a widespread acceptance, not everybody, but acceptance of interracial dating, acceptance of black men marrying or having uh, relations with white women. Not everybody, but it's it's just not that big a deal. Now, you you know, you can see it, you know, black men in media allowed to, you know, do whatever. <laughs> so there's acceptance of that. But there's still a lot of fear yes. about black men. Yes. That, 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 but it's not about interracial intimacy. It's other things. There's like, you know, the thug stereotype right, and right. Uh, criminal stereotypes. Those are still there. Mm-hmm. But what's really changed since 1967 when the you know court uh, um, made it illegal to ban interracial marriage is – the social acceptance. So I'll say that there's a lot more social acceptance, and you can really see it in media. It, you you almost never saw in movies or television a black man be allowed to touch a, 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 a white, white woman, woman yes. let alone have uh, sex with a white woman. Now it's in your face all over the place, and it's right. just not a big deal. Right. So that, right. that's been kind of a transformation. We think, I think um, of Jim Brown back but, in the 60s, uh, the <laughs> the black exploitation movies and Jim Brown and and how it was you know it was a travesty that he was touching or kissing and uh, having sexual relationships with white women. Um, so quite quite interesting to see um, that shift. That shift. I still think that there's still that perception about black men. And as I was saying, we talked about dating with the apps a couple weeks ago. And if you go on mass.com, you go on different places, there are people who will say, I prefer everyone but an African-American man. Um, so, Or they'll have this ambiguous preference as no preference, but as to say, well, I don't want to be in, in, not politically correct. Uh, well, let me say that black women have the same issue. Exactly. I'm not saying it's exactly. per- I'm not saying it's perfect or anything. Black women have the same issue, but half of white men say they're open to dating or, or marrying a black woman. So it's, something is changing. I got you, Professor. We appreciate your time. Uh, how can how can people see your work? How can they get in contact with you or see what you've got going on? You can buy the book, Loving. It's available on every outlet, uh, online and elsewhere. You can. Uh, I'm at CherylCashin.com. I'm at Twitter, Cheryl Cashin. I'm on Facebook, Cheryl Cashin. All right. Professor, we appreciate it, and thank you so much. And uh, we congratulate you on the success of your book. Thank you. All right. Take care. Take care. Please stay tuned to the What's Your Revolution show. We have some interesting conversation with two brothers from a varied perspective talking about how they stay woke and date indirectly. You're listening to the What's Your Revolution show on WBOK, 1230 a.m. 
kids. The Downtown Development District cordially invites you to the shops at Canal Place, Reindeer, Run, and Romp, and Holiday Scavenger Hunt presented by Energy on Saturday, December 9th at 9 a.m. The race will take place at the Canal Place Shops, 333 Canal Street. Registration begins at 8 a.m. and the race begins at 9. Pre-registration is available online at active.com. Ready, set, go. Join Rudolph, Santa, and friends as they jingle their bells to signal the start of the race. All participants will receive bells for their sneakers, antlers, and a race t-shirt, a bag of holiday goodies, and much more. After the race, romp around and enjoy healthy activities for kids and parents with music, games, crafts, and much more. Run to the Reindeer Run and Romp and Scavenger Hunt on December 9th at 9 a.m. at the Shops at Canal Place. We're bringing cultural empowerment to New Orleans. This is an opportunity to learn your history from a collective of productive descendants of Africa. Events are happening all over the city from downtown to the West Bank. Friday begins the weekend with the history and mission of the Kushites and a spiritual resonance party. Saturday, there will be a ceremony to honor the ancestors, a self-defense and nutrition class, spoken word, and Sunday closes out the weekend with the second line at Congo Square. Don't miss out on the power circle this weekend, December 8th through the 10th. For more info, check out WBOK social media for the full schedule. WBOK, New Orleans. Welcome back to the Western Revolution Show with Dr. Charles Corporate. I want to thank Professor Cheryl Passion for her insightful commentary uh, about her book, Loving Interracial Intimacy in America and the Threat to White Supremacy. Make sure you check it out on all outlets, Amazon, everything you can. Make sure you buy her book. I am joined today, let me make sure, by Bruce A. Ford, all right, Jr., all right, give you a full government name, and uh, Mr. Mr. Extraordinaire, not that this brother beside me is not extraordinaire, but I got to give him a little credence. This is my lead mentor from Propeller, management and nonprofit consultant, Blake J. Stanfield. All right, what's up, brothers? How y'all doing? Man, uh, uh-uh, we don't do this. We don't. We're doing well. We don't work like this on this show, man. I just had a really intellectual conversation. I need to. I need to calm down a little bit. Check it out. Yeah, exactly. I was just taken aback that I didn't get a senior on my name. You know, oh, Bruce got the junior. I, I did. Are, are you senior? I'm a senior. Out. Oh, Blake J. Stanfield, senior. Blake has three sons. Yeah. All right. Do you have any children? I know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I feel you. I got you. I got you. So uh, I just got to ask you. Quickly, quickly, because we want to make sure that we get into our topic uh, really about being woke and dating interracially. Uh, Bruce, what's your revolution? So mine is love. I think I wake up every day just trying to exude that. I mean, that's what God has asked us to do. I just find that that sustains me. So I try to get that off in conversation, relationships, whatever it is. Love? Yes, love is my revolution. Man, love is his revolution. That might be the most poignant one that we've heard <laughs> in the entire 12 months. Rachel tried. Um, Blake, <laughs> what's your revolution? Um, so my revolution is is to be a, a dreamer and a doer. So I think that uh, the world would be a better place if we all dream good dreams and then go out and actually accomplish those dreams. So be a dreamer, be a doer. Those are my be a dreamer and be a doer. Yes, All sir. right. This brother's talking about bringing love in every day. What are you dreaming about and then what are you doing? Uh, any number of things. I think that there are, I mean, if you, uh, part of our conversation today is about 
uh, being woke. And if you're woke, I think there's a number of of things that exist in our society that are worth uh, dreaming up better solutions to. And so that can encompass anything from social justice uh, uh, things or income inequality or any number of, 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 of areas. I think you should be dreaming up solutions um, to problems and then going out and actually uh, making those solutions happen. Gotcha. Gotcha. So um, yesterday, let's, let's just say yesterday I went to bed, right? Mm -hmm. And this morning I wanted to wake up woke. Okay. okay. I, I wanted I wanted to wake up woke today because I wasn't woke yesterday. Just where everybody's like, why does he keep saying woke? Right? <laughs> you know, I know that this is the term of 2016, 2015, being woke. My man Ethan Ashley, you know, stay woke, be woke, um, and his whole product line. So shout out to him. Um, what does that mean? I'm waking up. I'm gonna be woke today. What What does that mean? So go ahead. So I'd say, first of all, I think that that woke is a term that's been uh, watered down by um, its its prevalence in society um, today, but I think it just in general, I think being woke is 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 the awareness of the the multitude of ways in which uh, people and systems that uphold white supremacy uh, use race and gender, um, sexual orientation to as tools of of oppression. So it's your awareness of the ways in which um, white supremacy systems and people go about upholding those things. I got you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's everything that he said. But also, I think my generation is a bit at fault for, you know, <laughs> overusing woke. But I think it's just we like to use words that are quick. I mean, that's just mm -hmm. how we get <laughs> information and watch videos and everything. So it's like woke just encompasses everything that he said. And also, when I say that I go out and I try to um, project love, it's going out and fighting for equal rights for everyone, mm -hmm. you know? And that has not been the case in the history of this country. Right, right. exactly. And like you said, there are so many solutions, if you know that, to the problems that you see around you on a daily basis. So I think that woke is um, a word that people uh, people like to use when they're trying to find solutions to those problems and they say hey I'm woke because this is what I'm doing this is right. what I'm doing right yeah. exactly exactly and so it's interesting and uh, Bruce I'm sorry I didn't send this article to you but it, really the, the impetus for this conversation today was both the loving book and the article the piece that she wrote in the New York Times as well as Zebo Blaze being woke and dating white people mm -hmm. all right so <laughs> I'm going to make the assumption that everybody on this panel has or is dating Someone white. Mm -hmm. All right. And so, but I'm also going to make the assumption that everybody on this panel is also woke. All right. Okay. okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm going to make this assumption. Okay. So what is that like now, you know, from the various spaces that we walk through, what is that like for you personally to say, no, I'm woke and I'm fighting, but I'm also in someone else's, in, in someone else's lives possibly dating the oppressor. Mm -hmm. Not even possibly. Yeah. Right. I'm dating the, impress the oppressor. Mm -hmm. What is that like on a daily basis? Well, okay, so I currently have a white boyfriend. Um, <laughs> what it's like. Well, I've had conversations with some friends who know how I am, and they're surprised when they don't know who I'm dating, that I'm dating someone that is white. <laughs> and I'm like, well, why are you surprised? And they're like, well, I don't know how you are. Like, you know, right. that's the first thing that they say, and I'm like. No one's surprised. Even my mother told me that. was <laughs> like, I know you're kind of militant, so I just didn't. I'm not surprised, but I'm surprised. Like, I know you love people. My thing is, is that I grew up in a different generation. Mm -hmm. I mean, my parents, they're black. Both sides of my family are from Birmingham. Mm -hmm. So I know history. 
my family has been through it. Exactly. But at the same time, my dad was in corporate America. I grew up, my first neighbors, my first friends were the white girls down the street. Right. right. You know what I mean? So it's like Shout out to Atlanta, first grade. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you know, it's like that double, I mean, I think that as a black man, as a black person, period, I'm a, I mean, I'm black, I'm a gay man, like, man. So there's intersectionality that goes across all of those bounds, and I think that just my upbringing and being um, exposed to people very early that did not look like me helped me to see more good in people that maybe somebody who did not grow up like me and is seeing someone that does not look like them for the first time. The interaction there may be totally different than my interaction because I'm looking at you like, hey, girl, from down the street when I was a kid. <laughs> right. And you may be ignorant or have these preconceived notions of who, of who I am. But I think dating, when it comes to, like, in my home, I mean, the thing is is that I think once people have a true example of what something is versus what their perception of what something mm -hmm. is, it's very hard to for them to keep up a facade of what they feel like the world is or what they've been told. Mm -hmm. So what I tell people that have an issue with me dating someone who is white is that it, it's, it's not the same thing as, um, you know, working in a system to beat that system, right? It's not that. But what it is is when I go home, I'm just as open with him as I am with any of my friends, right. with any okay. of my family. Right. And my thing is is that if, there, if we do get to a point where you have an issue with that, we gotta have you a know, then we have to have yeah, a conversation, exactly. then we have an issue. Right, exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. But that hasn't presented itself, so. Gotcha. I mean, that, not to say in the past it hasn't. No, I'm sure. I'm, yeah, <laughs> I, look, again, I make the assumptions yeah, yeah. that we've all, even in this space, woke, dating white people, have had those experiences where you're like, hold up. Hold up. Yeah, exactly. Blake, you, you take this to the next level. I, I'm not saying another level, the next level. Blake is the proud father of three biracial sons mm -hmm. um, and is married to a white woman. Um, what has that process been like you? Because the reason why I wanted to have you in the show, because I told you I, left it, I lived in Jefferson, Paris, and then you gave me a historical shaming, <laughs> okay? All right, I want you to understand this. You gave me a historical shaming for living in JP, right? I exactly. True. Right, why and why? So I was like, yeah, okay, <laughs> let's get Blake on the show. So what's that like for you? You know, because you, you, you shame me. Yeah, so I would resist the temptation that people have to singularly define um, humans and, 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 your, and your humanity. I think that we're all on this uh, path in life trying to, to get other people to accept us in our, the depths of our souls. And so me, like who, I, who I've married is not the, not the one thing that you can judge me by. Just like me being tall isn't another thing. Not to trivialize like the, the partner with whom I chose to spend my life with. I don't want to, I don't mean to equate the two i'm just only noting that there's many ways in which like we are dynamic human beings and so like my partner is someone that my wife is is someone that you know our relationship has developed and 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 grown over time such that you know at the very core of it is the love that that that, that bruce is referring to and i think that like uh, it, it goes past just like the the color you know the color of of, of our skins now i do think that it presents uh being in an interracial relationship, and as the the previous guest that you had on here um, referred to, um, presents a, a ton of, of of challenges because relationships in general are challenging. Are challenging. Are tough. Full stop. Exactly. Like full stop. They're, they're hard. <laughs> 
um, and adding a, a, an external factor like race to a relationship creates even more uh, stressors um, that uh, that you know require like sophistication and ability to like navigate within your particular relationship. And so you know, I, I just say that you know our marriage is something that we are you know, continu- continuously working on such that, like, we are trying to build, like, the strength of our of our bond regardless of our race. But, you know, within that, um, when those stressors come up, we always have a foundation to, to come back to. I got you. So let me ask just a relationship tip here. Excuse me. Um, knowing that there are these stressors that are coming up, you're sitting at home and you're watching Charlottesville with your partner, all right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're watching what's going on with uh, Donald Trump and just the, the whole – mess that our, our country is in, and, and you're hearing these things, and then what happens in those moments, right? What happens when, when you're with your partner, right, in those moments, and you're watching those things together, how do you how do you come together? How do you galvanize? What, do you, what are your expectations? There it is. That's a question. What are your expectations from your partners in those moments when you know that viscerally you're feeling what's going on? Mine is understanding. You know, um, I don't think that partner can put his put himself in my shoes but I don't expect that either I just want you to be able to understand if I'm angry if I feel a way about this why I feel a way about that and where that comes from versus you know like I always go to when I'm trying to have a conversation with someone and we may be on different pages like try to be more understanding than you are trying to be understood in that moment Mm, that active listening right so if like if I'm getting that from him and he's getting that from me, then the conversation goes better. Like Spike Lee just dropped, you know, a new um, series off of the movie. She's, She's gotta, gotta have, have it, it. <laughs> on Netflix. We binged it over the weekend, and I mean it was just funny. It, I mean it was like watching it. I mean there's a lot of like white black this, white mm-hmm. black that, mm-hmm. and it's just like good. I mean he was watching it more than I was, you know. Right. So it's right. like that type of thing, trying to understand. Yeah. No. You're listening to the What's Your Revolution show with Dr. Charles Corpru, powered by Aetna, having this great conversation about what it is to be woke and date interracially with Blake J. Stanfield Sr. <laughs> and Bruce A. Ford Jr. All right. I am Charles Corpru III. Uh, <laughs> um, so, again, I, I ask that you're experiencing life. We're experiencing America mm-hmm. 2017. You're sitting there with your wife. What is that like? What do you expect from her? You know, during this period of time when you know as a black man, you're you that visceral feelings in your body, you're pissed, you're angry, you're like, what the, yeah, what do you expect from that? I think it starts before that moment. Um, it behooves of anyone in any relationship to to build up like support and like infrastructure in your relationship and norms about how to communicate about difficult topics, um, how to deal with uh, strenuous uh, situations in the relationship. Such and so when. Uh, race-related events happen, uh, traumatizing events happen, um, there's already norms on the best way to support your partner in that situation. Unpack that. So so for me, I oftentimes find myself needing more outlets, particularly in this um, uh, overtly, more overtly um, oppressive environment we find ourselves in in the last year or so. Um, I find myself needing more um, outlets uh, or more opportunities to engage with blackness and like unbridled joy of, of black, black people. Boy, that black boy joy. Yeah. So I mean, so I mean, Charles, as you know, every Sunday I go to Second Lines because like that's my church, and I and my wife is like, hey, go. you you need it, go mm-hmm. because 
that's what I need in order to turn on, I mean, to open my phone and log on to Twitter and hear about this and that, right? So I think that for every relationship, for every individual within a relationship, there are there are norms that need to be created, um, communication and support um, tools that you can rely on when things get tough. Because there are people that are in relationships um, that have differences, that have different politics, that have different um, that have different races, that have you know different opinions on things. Yeah, who, who may believe in more conservative or more patriarchal way of the way in which a, a woman should do certain things or a man should do other things. If you don't have the the infrastructure and tools in place in order to talk through those those types of things, regardless of race, you're going to be in trouble. Right. And yeah, so yeah. for for me, we just go back to those things. For us, I'm sorry, we go back to the tools that we have in place, and then when things get really hard, we have that. Exactly. So building that framework of trust, communication, precisely, and love um, at the core, uh, and understanding that we have entered into this union, and who we who we are, and what we're bringing to that. Just from a, a not even just from, but from the intersexual perspective, but knowing that race is going to be one of those things Precisely. that is going to be a pivotal conversation at some point. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, why is there is this perception that if you do date interracially, you are losing your wokeness? <laughs> <laughs> I think for black men, it goes to the thing of I mean, when black men when when black men started getting any type of real money, type of wealth. You know what I mean? It just seemed that our people had the perception that you go to Hollywood, you sign a contract, you do whatever. You get a white woman. You become a rapper, you get a white woman. You know? And that is difficult to try to maneuver because people usually when they have an issue, they're coming at it from that standpoint or the history of it all, you know? Um, Yeah, so listen, I, I just add on that by just saying that I think that perception is there for for any number of reasons. I think there are a couple archetypes of of black men or for people who date uh, or marry interracially. Uh, one of which is you know choosing to be with uh, a, a white person because th- it upholds like this the the highest value. They have the highest stature um, in. Uh, a system or in a society that's based on white supremacy. So there's like that archetype. There's also folks who would, you know, who would say this because of like a, like a status symbol or something like that. Or um, fetishization. Uh, uh, like the fetishization right, right. Of, of, of whiteness. And I think that those things are um, are there, those archetypes are there because they have existed um, have, and have persisted in many ways. Um, I don't think that those are the only reasons why, obviously, that one could be in an interracial relationship. And, but I do think that informs why folks might think that you are a certain way. I, I was at a second line actually last week, and they were honoring uh, Soldier Slim, who happens to be one of my favorite rappers. Right. And he also has a song right. that, um, in which he's like, um, you know, you can call me racist, a black man in this white world. I'm sick of seeing sellouts married to these white girls. Mm-hmm. And I remember cringing because, right. because I hear this. I'm listening to the song, and I'm like, you know, but he goes on to talk about like. Um, the inequities and in the the criminal justice system and the the different uh, amounts of times that uh, uh, you know the, the extrajudicial murders of black people by police officers that that go you know untreated in in, in our criminal justice system and and thought to myself well I'm actually fighting for exactly. for those exactly. things right. in my in my day to day I'm ensuring that my children are are kept abreast of of, of these and instilling in them like the the proudness of being. Um, at least partially black, but will be perceived as being black um, in the future. So anyway, um, I remember cringing because uh, it 
suggested that there's a singular definition um, of, of blackness. Um, that by virtue of me choosing to be um, with my wife, I don't meet said threshold. Certain criteria in, in, uh, in, in their blackness. Right, exactly. And, so, and, and it was that initial re- reaction that I had, but then I went on to, to, to think through and realize that. And not internalize And not internalize mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, let me, as I'm thinking through, because we, we tend to, as, as black men, think through when we decide to date in a relationship, and particularly when we decide to date white women or white men, um, we feel like we're leaving black men and black women behind. Or is that mm-hmm. that perception that we are then leaving them out of the conversation? Mm-hmm. You know, um, mm-hmm. how, how do we ensure that black men and black women that we date feel just as, as how do, what's the word that I want to say, empowered that it is not a choice that we're, we're leaving you behind you mm-hmm. understand what i'm saying mm-hmm. um because there's that feeling like you don't you, you're not good enough for me so i'm moving on to i'm moving on to this and so how do we make sure that if we choose to date interracially that we still empower both black men and women in those choices i think it's like you said it's the work that you do i do every day you know mm-hmm. what i mean so once you know what you're doing what other people feel like you're doing becomes less because you're like, well, I know what I just did and what I'm doing later on today. So it's like your perception of me or who you think I am based off of what you know or think, let's just say think, really means nothing to me at the end of the day if it's just a conversation where you want to address what your issue is with me versus um, why you had that issue in a general sense, outside of me. You know what I mean? And then we can have that conversation. But we're just not going to have a conversation where you tell me why I'm wrong, why I'm wrong, why I'm wrong, and you never want to hear why. any why, exactly. you know? Exactly. So. This, is, this is my why. Like, yeah. yeah, I just, you know, try to be active in, you know, kinship and allyship um, for those, you know, groups that are disenfranchised and who are belittled by a, a society that says that black women are you know, less than mm-hmm. other other groups of women. And so, you know, I try to support um, in the platforms that I can, um, you know, women of color. Um, or, you know, I try to support, you know, organizations that support, you know, those, those groups as well. And so, you know, I don't think that there's going to be able to um, – a perfect response in every single situation, but I do think that you know you you let your actions speak for themselves. I got mm-hmm. you. I got you. So we, we think about this, and and, and we the furor that comes up sometimes. We saw Serena and Alexis, and then now with Prince Harry and <laughs> Meghan Markle. You know, in, in this phenomenon, when you when you saw the furor that came up about Serena. And Alexis, you know, and how and that, and that was really Zebra was really talking about how black women have taken it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, on one since you're the strong black woman. But now you're giving up that 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 strength because you're now going. Um, and now this whole conversation about ooh, the black princess, yeah. um, because it, it actually brings up two different things. If this was LeBron and, yeah. it, you know, and a white woman. Right. Yes. Or, you know, if. Uh, if if Megan was a dark skinned woman, so all of these conversations tend tend to come up. How do we then 
navigate the nuance. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Na- a, a navigation of the nuance. Think about nuance that. Nuance in 2017? <laughs> because that's what it is. We don't do nuance. We do a lot of nuance. <laughs> you know, we, we, we definitely do a lot of nuance. We want to thank Courtney from Facebook says, you know, I'm very much pro-black. However, being woke doesn't determine who I should love. I prefer black kings, but I don't others who I don't know others for their choice. I don't, you know, unless you choose to in a mate who's a Trump supporter. So he's basically saying he doesn't discriminate, you know, <laughs> unless unless you coming down like, uh, yeah, no, you voted for Trump. Um, right. Yeah, right. I, I'm good with that. Yeah. And so I think that we just have to think about the well, nuance. Go ahead, Blake. Yeah, I, I would just say in in, in reference to S- Serena and Alex and then Prince Harry and Meghan, I think that um, I, I guess like data just shows that there is a prevalence of interracial relationships um, in a few different like pockets. So one pocket um, is people who are, are more highly um, more highly educated. It's also more prevalent in younger um, people. It's also more que- uh, prevalent in, in queer populations. It's also um, all of the all these confounding factors. It's also more prevalent in more diverse places. Um, and exactly. so exposure, you cover exposure. what you see every day. Exactly, simple and psychology. Exactly. So when I when I think of rich and famous people who are marrying. Uh, Interracial, uh, interracially, it's not as my my reaction isn't one of, of vitriol or well obviously because of you know my wife but uh, or my relationship but I, I I don't think it is this you know it's not a vitriol because I expect you know I think these folks within these groups to to be uh, more intermingling exactly. than another population. I gotcha. We're about to close out, man. The show always goes by so fast. <laughs> appreciate everybody that stayed with us the entire time. But I always want to make sure that we give strategies, all right? So people have these these takeaways. Mm-hmm. My lead mentor's like, yes, give <laughs> strategies. Um, what are some strategies that you would like to offer black folks and white folks, all right, to help their relationships be more successful and for them to be more woke as they are traversing the landscape in 2017? I'm going to say just to be open. To everyone, to all things, and I'm not going to say, you know, to evil things, but you know what works for you, and you know what does not work for you. You know, if somebody, like you said, going back to the evil thing, if you're a Trump supporter, you know how far you can take a conversation like that and how far you can't. But if somebody's trying to meet you at a neutral ground or it's just trying to say hi and, hey, can we get a drink, whatever, like, just be open to that because you don't know where it's going to go and you don't know what that person's uh, background is. They may be, quote, unquote, blacker, like people like to say, since we've been throwing these terms out, then, you know, you would say you were based off of what this society tells you what is black, you know. So I would just say to be open to that and see what happens. Gotcha. Quickly, Blake. I would say that you have to have a, a keen sense of awareness of your of your partner's needs um, and what is their treatment and outlets um, that they need in order to survive in, in these in these trying times? Be that uh, support system that any partner partner's action is not enough. Gotcha, brothers. I appreciate it. Blake sure. J. Stanfield, Senior, Bruce A. Lita. Ford, <laughs> Junior, and uh, Charles you. S. Corper the third today on the What's Your Revolution show talking about being woke and dating interracially. Make sure you check us out every week here on 1230 AM, WBOK. Next week's show is The Power of the Collective, Why is the, Why You Need a Rat Pack. I want to thank <laughs> Dr. Cash and make sure you check out our book, Jazz Behind the Wheels of Steel. my producer, Rachel. Appreciate you. Have a good week. And always answer the question of your life, what's your revolution?